Hello and welcome to episode number 301 of the Armin Show podcast, where we are learning more and we're in the 300s now. Different settings for the zeros, the 100s, the 200s, and now it's a new time. And globally, as far as the virus, it's also sort of a new time as well. So there's a bit of a transitionary moment. On this episode here, very fittingly, we have renowned immunologist. Let me give you a great biography, which is something that is informative. John Rhodes, UK-based international expert in immunology and vaccine discovery, has held research fellowships at the US NIH and the University of Cambridge. And from 2001 to 2007, Director of Strategy in Immunology at GlaxoSmithKline. He is the author of the book, How to Make a Vaccine, an essential guide for COVID-19 and beyond. He joins us on this show. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to be with you tonight. I'm glad to have you on. I am in Los Angeles. And where are you coming from today? I'm in East Sussex in the United Kingdom. UK is one of, in my view, the hotspots in the earth as far as research and philosophy and a lot of thought. Have you noticed the trend? I, this is something that's hefty to me. Have you noticed the trend of a lot of thought and research coming from the UK? Yes, I, I think the UK has always um, been strong um, in scientific research. And uh, if you, one of the measures of this is, uh, is how many Nobel prizes are awarded in science. And um, I think at, at one point when I was uh, researching this, the USA had the largest number of Nobel Prizes, but the British had the largest number per capita. So uh, while uh, the US, uh, we, we were the, um, uh, I guess our contribution per head of scientists was greater, greatest in the world at that particular time. It is a substantial contribution and I see it, whether it's England or Scotland or uh, we in in science we don't we don't make any difference right i like that point <laughs> we're all working together. many of our best engineers are scottish it's oh. tr tr if you take engineering for example uh, great engineers come from scotland that makes sense i didn't even think about that engineering is valuable as well now from where you are currently can you take us through how you got to where you are the steps along the way in your living. I can indeed, uh, and it'll be a pleasure to do so. I, uh, in 2013, I published a book called um, The End of Plagues, The Global Battle Against uh, Infectious Disease. Um, and uh, that uh, having been a, a lifelong research immunologist and vaccinologist, um, I was, uh, uh, moved by the fact that we were very close to eliminating polio on the global scale at that time in 2013. Um, and I wrote the book uh, to coincide with what I thought would be the elimination of polio. Sad, sadly, it wasn't to be uh, war-torn uh, regions of, uh, of um, Asia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, eluded uh, the attempts of the uh, the international uh, strategy to eliminate polio. Um, and uh, since then, cases have bubbled along at about uh, 20 to 30 per year. Um, but uh, we haven't succeeded in eliminating polio. In 2020, Africa became polio free. Nigeria was the last country in Africa to have uh, 
polio cases. So that, that's the background. I was already an established author after a, a long career in immunology. Um, and uh, Britain went into lockdown on uh, March 20th, 23rd, 2020. And um, just a few weeks after that, in mid-April, my literary agent, Peter Tallock, said, if you can write a, a book on the, the race for the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, I think we can, uh, we can publish it and it would uh, do well. Uh, and so I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me until then that I could do that. I was working on another project, uh, a book on uh, the history of immunology. Um, and when he said that, I realized, well, of course I could do that. That would be my contribution. So many other people in the healthcare system were making heroic contributions and uh, I wanted to do something. That's what I decided I could do. Um, and after that, it all went very quickly. Um, the project was accepted by the um, University, University of Chicago Press. Um, and I had a great editor in the shape of uh, Joe Kalamia. Um, and together, you know, writing a book is a collaborative process. Together, we produced um, How to Make a Vaccine. Um, and uh, we finished the technical editing in September um, of 2020. Uh, so in order to for the book to be successful, I had to predict what I thought was going to happen. Um, and I was uh, right from the outset, very optimistic that we would have a number of successful COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, and I thought that RNA and uh, viral vector vaccines such as the Oxford vaccine would succeed. And indeed that turned out to be the case. So in January, 2021, I was able to write the epilogue uh, recounting the success um, which, which really surpassed expectation of the uh, of four vaccines in those classes. Speaking of that, on that point, for the people that are wondering, what types of vaccines came out as the official vaccines that were accepted across UK, United States, and other countries? Yes, so... Uh, RNA vaccines are in many ways the most interesting of all because um, th th these vaccines which, have, which are now have the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, mm -hmm. uh, which are so very successful, um, they are the first vaccines of their kind. We've never had vac vaccines in that class, uh, but they didn't spring out of nowhere. Um, the, the, the idea of nucleic acid vaccines, RNA and DNA are members of uh, the nucleic acid family, uh, that type of vaccine uh, was first uh, came into the minds of scientists, uh, US scientists, uh, um, in, uh, in, uh, nine, uh, in uh, 1990. Uh, so they've had 30 years of uh, sort of slow maturation. Um, and initially there was a, a great deal of optimism. That was followed by some disappointment as they, the vaccines didn't appear to be effective. And then early in the 20th century, um, in 2005 in particular, there was a breakthrough in understanding how RNA vaccines could be made to work. And this was worked by, um, uh, in the American scientists uh, in Philadelphia um, and Drew Weissman and his colleagues discovered a way that in which we could make uh, RNA vaccines work. Uh, and by 2017, um, both, five, uh, both BioNTech, the German company, and Moderna had their RNA vaccines in human trials. They were both for influenza, 
Um, and uh, BioNTech were also, also interested in, in therapeutic vaccines for cancer, for things like uh, prostate cancer and uh, melanoma. Um, and so uh, RNA vaccines were extremely cutting edge, extremely new, but they were already in clinical human clinical trials in, in 2017. So when the uh, news of the pandemic came in January 2020, uh, RNA, the field of RNA vaccination was poised for success. There was plenty of preparation in place. Uh, as soon as uh, scientists learned the sequence of the SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus, uh, from uh, Wuhan uh, virologists, they were able to plug that into their vaccine technology and very quickly generate their, their vaccines, which proved so immensely successful in December 2020. When I, I liked when you were describing in the book that the things that were already done years ago, immediately it was like plug and play and then go with the new options. If we, obviously this is a hypothetical, but if we removed the last decade of research and we went back to let's say 2010, and now we had the same uh, virus show up, how long would the vaccine have taken in comparison, like a uh, estimate? Yes, I think uh, in 2010, we weren't quite as prepared as we needed to be. Uh, so there were refinements um, to be made. Uh, there was um, preclinical testing in animal models and then uh, clinical testing to show safety, uh, the, the all important factor of, uh, of safety. Um, and uh, most of that came, came to maturation in 2017. So we had kind of like three years of, in which anything could happen and we would have been ready. Prior to that, it would have taken a little bit longer. I think it may be maybe two to three years to do what, what was achieved um, in less than a year. That is a nice thing to hear. I like that when you were describing various conditions in the book, you were talking about how the story progresses and there was this attempt and then maybe this company had a manufacturing error and then uh, safety was more of a concern and the steps along the way. Now we are in May, 2021 and have progressed a year from when it started a year and a little bit more. If immunologists have a main issue now, what would that be that is their biggest concern at this point? Um, I think that the main uh, issue is the um, variants of concern, um, as they're called. So the, vir the virus uh, doesn't mutate particularly fast. It mutates, uh, it is mutating, of course, and it's doing so at about half the rate of uh, flu viruses. Um, and we know we can deal with, uh, with uh, influenza on a using a sort of yearly update to cover the, uh, the variations that occurred during the previous year. Um, and we can do the same, I'm sure, with, um, with COVID-19. But the, because uh, the whole, the entire world has been um, uh, subject to, to very rapid viral transmission throughout every populations in every nation of the world, um, uh, th then the numbers of variants which have arisen I have exceeded expectation. Um, and so it's not, a, it's not a massive problem. It's not something we can't surmount. The fact, it does, when there's a mutation of concern, it doesn't mean the vaccine is ineffective. It means it's a little bit less effective. 
And so it will still prevent hospitalization. It will still prevent serious disease, um, but it won't be good as good as, as, it, as it was with the original virus. So we can cope with these. We can make updated um, vaccines for use uh, probably in the fall of uh, 2021. Um, and uh, these will deal with the, the major variants that have, have arisen. Um, and so it's not going to be a problem, but um, it certainly was somewhat unexpected. The thing about these vaccines is, by their nature, plug and play, they're extremely flexible and quickly adaptable. And that's exactly what we can do to contend with this newly emerging problem. Hmm. How broad is it? The spike protein is a big part of what has been targeted, it appears, and the variants have more transmissibility or affect the immune system more in some way. But if the spike pro protein is what the vaccine is targeting, can the mutations really get around that or are they limited? Yes. Uh, yeah, so uh, the, uh, the spike protein is a little over 1200 amino acids um, and uh, the, the various um, variants, um, mutations that occur, usually less than less than a dozen uh, amino acids. So they're relatively small parts of that, that larger whole. So um, you can still prevent serious disease, um, but you can fine tune the next generation of, of vaccines by, by <clears throat> using the sequence of those, those uh, maybe um, you know, a dozen altered amino acids in the, uh, in the total structure. And so the only variants of concern are the ones usually in the spike protein, but you can, you can make new, new, new vaccines to deal with that. The other thing is, this is all based on looking at antibodies. Antibodies are not the only defenders in the immune system. T cell immunity, cell mediated immunity um, is, is equally important and, and can be equally effective against the virus. So uh, saying that we have an evasion of uh, at the end level of antibody is not necessarily the problem that you might imagine it is. Mm -hmm. Another thing on the spike protein, do we have, is there nothing else that includes the spike protein that we use biochemically and only the virus has that type of way to get into cells? Well, the, the, the spike protein is... Uh, targets a, a molecule on the surface of um, many kinds of cells. It's called ACE2. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a, uh, uh, an important cell surface structure, which is to do with regulating blood pressure. Angio angiotensin converting enzyme is the name of the, the structure. Um, so it's, uh, it's an important physiological molecule. Um, but <clears throat> the fact that uh, antibodies against it completely prevent the virus from getting into cells makes it, you know, the, that, that makes it the target that most people have gone, gone for. Other people, uh, some, some vaccine producers have gone for a, a much broader spectrum of, um, uh, of uh, antigens in their vaccine. Uh, for example, the Chinese have gone for whole killed virus. So that, that uh, means that all the structures in the, in the virus uh, are generating an immune response in those vaccines, um, not just the, the ACE2. Um, and uh, so other, other people have gone for the core of the virus. And there are, there are probably 70 um, uh, uh, 
viral vaccines in development for COVID-19, which have yet to hit headlines because they're not, uh, they're not in clinical trials. And they're looking at very different strategies, looking at the core, uh, looking at a broad specificities. So um, I, th I think the fact that ACE2 is the focus of, um, that uh, the, the spike is the focus of most successful vaccines uh, isn't, um, isn't really a weakness in the, in the strategy. And when vaccines are taken in, are they so separate, the virus and the vaccine interplay, that they have nothing to do with any of our other pathways? Like this happens almost separately, like there's an invader and it's protect and everything else runs smoothly around? Well, you normally vaccinate people who, who don't have the virus. So uh, they've either um, haven't encountered the virus or they've recovered from a previous uh, uh, illness with, uh, uh, or, or perhaps they had asymptomatic COVID-19. In that case, um, the vaccine uh, can work very well. Uh, if people have already had the virus, they'll be like a boosting uh, effect. So uh, that that sh that should be um, that will be very effective. Um, and as to interfering with physiological normal physiological processes, vaccines don't interfere with those processes. So we don't need to be um, concerned about that. Um, on the other hand, uh, COVID-19 itself, when it's allowed to, when, it, when the infection runs its course, it can, uh, in a proportion, a small proportion of people, cause long-term problems, so-called long COVID. Um, and it's not really, we don't fully understand how that occurs or why that occurs. Uh, and there's a great deal of clinical research um, into uh, how a, a small minority of individuals suffer long-term uh, problems from um, COVID-19 infection. Now, it looks like safety has been pretty well established over a year and uh, a lot of people have already been vaccinated. At this point, now that so many have been vaccinated, what safety concerns come to mind? Is there any like big data that is able to be accumulated to map forward? Yes, well, I think the uh, the clotting uh, problem uh, has been the major uh, concern for for those monitoring vaccine safety, um, and there's no doubt that uh, clotting is occurring in a tiny proportion of um, individuals who've received the vaccine. There hasn't been a um, formal proof that this that the vaccine is causing these problems. But it does seem quite likely that it that it is. These are the uh, the viral vector vaccines, um, the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine, and the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Um, and uh, the number of, of cases are, is very very low. Uh, it's it's about uh, at best at worst rather half a million individuals. Uh, one in half a million individuals receiving a vaccine may have these um, clotting uh, complications. So the, 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 the benefit of the vaccines hugely outweighs um, the risks, but um, clinical research, intensive clinical research is ongoing to try and understand how this uh, clotting phenomenon is occurring. When the vaccines are coming out and there's many different ones, you talk about evaluating the contenders, what are the, what's a key point that separates them? Is it just safety or if one stands out as super effective and it's slightly not as safe, it'll still be uh, award-winning? Like, how does that get ranked? 
yes, so there, there is a balance to be struck between uh, safety and, uh, and the effectiveness of the vaccine. And uh, happily, you know, it's, it's not something we've had to compromise on. I mean, the most successful vaccines, the, the RNA vaccines from uh, Moderna and Pfizer seem to be extremely safe. Um, <clears throat> the viral vector vaccines, uh, they're easier to distribute. They don't need um, storage at very low temperatures. Uh, and they're cheaper to, to that they're cheaper, um, so that they they really were the work, workforce candidates for global distribution, um, and so that's why there was uh, it was disappointing to see the safety concerns uh, arising, uh, but I don't think it's going to prevent the uh, um, low and middle income nations from benefiting from the viral vector vaccines, uh, and in the case of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, it's a single shot vaccine that's also hugely useful in areas where you may have hard to reach populations where health infrastructure uh, may not be as good as in the developed nations. Um, and uh, the other thing is when we, we've got, there will be other second generation vaccines which are given orally and perhaps nasally, which will have a, a great ease of use uh, advantage. And that will be another factor in what, uh, in the longer term, is, uh, is adopted in, in the global fight against COVID-19. Hmm. I didn't think about that. That's a good point about the single shot being valuable where one place they can only guarantee that somebody will get one shot and then they might go somewhere else. Interesting. One question that came to mind is uh, coronaviruses were sort of predicted and seen over time to come up and there are other potential ones in the background that could transfer zoonotically. What does, do they all involve like a spike protein or what other category of viruses should we be concerned about that this, these vaccines don't cover? Well, I think uh, in, in the case of Ebola, which um, was uh, in, in uh, 20, 2014, uh, we had uh, a, most serious Ebola epidemic we've ever had. That had a, a very similar uh, cell surface protein which latched onto a particular component of human cells, uh, very similar to the, the, the spike protein. Um, and Merck developed um, a vaccine. Um, it, took, um, it took five, five years and, and more for that vaccine to uh, reach the clinic. Uh, and it's just in 2020 was um, licensed for use in uh, West Africa, and it's more than 80% effective against Ebola. So I think that uh, that was a very good um, learning ground for what we would have to contend with with COVID-19. Um, I think it's the problem with emergent diseases by definition is we don't know what they're going to be. Um, in, in the beginning of the 21st century, we had SARS. Um, and then in 2020, we had um, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the COVID-19 uh, epidemic is a, uh, a development from the original SARS um, uh, epidemic of, uh, of, um, of the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, but with the exploitation of, uh, increasing exploitation of uh, natural environments by human incursion, uh, it's inevitable that we'll come, come across new viruses um, zoonotic viruses confined to animals in the past, which are now uh, you know, ripe to become the emergent uh, infections of the future. 
But the good news is we will have all these tools, all these viral, all these vaccine technologies, uh, all these platforms uh, into which we can plug the new components of whatever virus um, is the next to hit us in the decades ahead. Now, in some countries, such as the United States or the United Kingdom, the virus has more or less come and diminished. And then in some other countries, it's somewhat flattened out. And then we have our example of India at this time that is zooming up in numbers. Other than obviously India is, has a, like a shock factor to it as far as it happening. But for future countries, will they have readily available solutions if there's some sort of uh, spring up that the best vaccines can be sent there and target that group? Yes, well, I think it's, it's, it's ironic that India is, is having such a very difficult time uh, at present because they're one of the important manufacturers of uh, COVID-19 vaccines. Um, the uh, State Serum Institute of India produces large amounts of the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine, for example, uh, and they also have their own vaccines which their their own scientists have uh, discovered and are developing. Um, the problem in India was the, the vaccine rollout was rather slow uh, and they relaxed um, uh, the, the sort of lockdown kinds of measures and uh, because in that culture uh, gatherings are so very important to uh, religious life and spiritual life um, I think that's contributed to the, 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 uh, the terrible situation that they currently face. The other thing is we have to remember that India has a population of one point, more than 1.3 billion people. You know, the US has a little over uh, 300 million. The UK has a little under 70 million people. Um, 1.3 billion people, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's very difficult to um, to orchestrate an effective um, response to a, vir a virus which is running, running wild. Um, and um, the world is responding, the world is sending aid, the world is sending uh, oxygen, and, uh, uh, and uh, there are organizations such as COVAX who are very, very keen to uh, try to uh, send uh, vaccines to those in most need. Uh, but it will take time and I'm afraid that um, it, it will it will be a while before um, India gets gets on top of the uh, the surge in the COVID nineteen cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me think about future countries like let's say Venezuela or some various country that are small. And then if now we have all the data and we have the vaccines and other countries taken care of, then if there's some sort of uh, rise, then they can send supplies and target. Yes, I think that's a good point. Uh, they, there is a, a, a policy to donate excess vaccines. Uh, I mean, I think m most public health experts believe that uh, global, um, that servicing uh, low and middle income countries with vaccines would have to wait until the uh, developed nations had satisfied the needs of their own populations. Uh, it doesn't sound ethical, but it just, just is a fact of life. That that's what's going to happen. But as soon as that, uh, as soon as countries begin to get on top of it, like the USA, uh, the UK, and Europe, uh, then they they are committed to distributing their excess vaccines um, 
and organizations such as COVAX, which is, uh, works with the WHO and Gavi um, and uh, UNESCO, uh, they are, um, they're, they're, their sole purpose in life is to ensure equitable distribution of vaccines to nations in need. It's just that they have to wait until uh, the uh, developed nations have uh, satisfied the needs of their own population. It's already beginning to happen um, and, uh, and commitments are already there on paper, but it will take a while. And I take your point about small uh, um, Latin American countries and the, the difficulties they're facing, um, uh, very difficult at the present time. Right. It's nice when one group already has things managed and then is able to reach back and assist some others. That's a cool feature. Now, in every category, there are people that are the forerunners in that category. Obviously, there's historical individuals that are the people that tried things, which is the important thing in life, just trying things, figuring it out. In the current moment, are there any immunologists or epidemiologists that um, you look to or that seem to be like the philosopher of that category? Um, well, I think the the uh, heroic figures of uh, of, of the COVID race for the COVID nineteen vaccine uh, have have been, for example, the the uh, the Turkish founders of the uh, of the BioNTech um, company, who were quietly working away on vaccines for cancer, cancer therapy, um, and influenza. Uh, they were first generation immigrants from Turkey to Germany. Um, and uh, they founded BioNTech as a, really as a, a can, for a, as a cancer therapy company. Um, and in the, at the beginning of um, 2020, they made you know this this most important business decision to, to commit to uh, COVID-19 vaccination. Um, so they're they're academics, they're they're ordinary hardworking scientists, and yet they've uh, they've um, completely turned the, the tide of uh, the COVID-19. Um, pandemic. So I think they, uh, people like them uh, have been extremely important. The same is true in, in the case of Moderna, where um, uh, the, the scientists who pioneered RNA vaccination, uh, they couldn't be, they couldn't know that it was going to be so, so successful. Uh, but nevertheless, they, they committed themselves to bringing it to uh, fruition. Uh, and lastly, the, the Oxford scientists they were very much um, preparing for what they called disease X, the next um, pandemic that would, would, would come out of nowhere. Uh, they were there for the SARS epidemic. They were there for the MERS, Middle East uh, respiratory virus epidemic. Uh, and that uh, uh, they, they produced the platforms which they could then rapidly switch to um, COVID-19 when the, when the need arose. Um, and so their policy was one of vigilance you know, what is, what is this emerging back virus going to be important? If so, we need to spring into action immediately. And that's exactly what they did. It's a wonderful thing. One thing that I thought about you describing that is a lot of it is preparation and using past research. Is there any element of small amounts of luck in the past year anywhere in the attempts or is there not really room for that? Well, I think I think it, it, there has been been luck, um, uh, and uh, 
for, for decades we were, were struggling with um, DNA vaccines, in particular nucleic acid vaccines as a class, trying to, to increase their potency. Um, and then in uh, around um, 20, 2005, um, there was a breakthrough in understanding how to uh, make RNA look more like human RNA. So the RNA from a virus is a danger signal for the immune system. The immune system goes into overdrive when it sees it, eliminates it too early before the vaccine can do its job. And so uh, groups such as uh, Drew Weissman's lab in Philadelphia uh, um, showed us how we could modify RNA to make it look more like human RNA, and then it could be used as a vaccine. Um, so I think they, that was you know, an important breakthrough. And there was a certain amount of luck in, in discovering why it was that we were having so much trouble with them. RNA vaccines. Um, and then in, um, in uh, 2012, I think it was, uh, people discovered how to protect uh, RNA vaccines using these lipid parcels, these, these fatty envelopes, uh, which would give them a sufficient lifetime in the body um, to, to be taken up by cells and do their jobs as potent vaccines. Um, so that was, that was another important component. But I think there's less, rather than um, lucky breaks, uh, most of this has been a sort of gradual progression building on, on knowledge. Um, and uh, as I said earlier, the fact that we were at this state of preparedness when the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic broke. That's a cool feature. When you were describing that, I like that, that if it was uh, too quickly attacked, then there it doesn't work and if it's too long you described it in the book i like that the natural filter of when there's like a young person if uh, their immune system immediately fights off items that are like itself uh, to get rid of or uh, removes any attacking of one's own cells and then there was a two-sided filter can you describe that Yes, I can. Uh, so there are two major components to the immune system, uh, and one is called the innate immune system. Uh, it evolved very early in the evolution of life, uh, and it's a simpler, more fundamental system, uh, which eliminates uh, infectious threats uh, very quickly. Um, later, um, about uh, around the uh, time that the bony fishes evolved, the adaptive immune system evolved. And that's much more intelligent, much more specific. Uh, and that's what we're aiming for, it's adaptive. So once it's, uh, it learns the shape of um, pathogens and it remembers them. Um, and so that's what vaccines exploit. So if the innate immune system, which just eliminates um, uh, uh, incoming infections uh, works too quickly, then the adaptive intelligent immune system doesn't get the chance to learn and remember uh, the infection. I think it's super cool. It's like evolution inside of oneself early on. Yes, is... indeed. It's all still there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that keeps us, uh, even in 2021, having a healthy response, kind of like we did in 1400 or 800 or whenever. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of cool. I guess it had to be in there that way or else we would have uh, broken down at some point. These kinds of things need to be there in some way. Yes. It's kind of a cool feature. Um, one thing I always like to check in a broader nature, if you had a 
message to all people of the planet uh, regarding either immunology or the current state of the globe? What might you tell all people? Well, I think the, fir the first thing I would tell it, I would want to assure them that vaccines are safe. Um, and it's very understandable that there is a degree of vaccine hesitancy um, because people under don't understand how these vaccines were developed uh, so quickly for COVID-19. Uh, but the fact is, it, it is because of what we've been talking about, the fact that the technologies were already there, already proven to be safe. You just had to add that extra element, the cassette for the COVID-19 vaccine. So I would urge people uh, to um, seek vaccination and to uh, accept vaccination because they're protecting themselves and they're protecting those around them. Um, and another thing I would say is um, nobody wins this battle against the virus until everybody wins because we, we've seen how um, problems in, in uh, South America or in Asia can lead to new, new mutants, to new variants, which can trouble the whole world. Um, and so we need to understand that the global collaborative e effort to beat this virus uh, is of supreme importance and we should all contribute to it as much as we can. And we should all um, understand the importance of international collaboration and helping those countries uh, who are in most need because we also benefit when that happens. We're all part of one whole thing. Indeed, very much so in the case of a pandemic. Right. Renowned immunologist, John Rhodes, I would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show. Your book, How to Make a Vaccine, is available for the people. And thank you for the knowledge you have provided to all of us. Oh, but it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on the show. This is great. And we are out.